Lord, we thank you that you are more than enough for each of us, that your grace and your spirit and your word and your love and your gift of salvation, your forgiveness, Father, is all more than we deserve and more than enough for all we need. I pray, my King, as we seek you in your word tonight, as we worship you by studying what you would have us to hear, that we would draw closer to you, that you would uh, speak to us where we're at in the things that we're dealing with, and that you would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. I thought I would start with an uplifting verse. What we see here in James chapter 1 is the progression of sin and how sin compounds and gets worse when we don't confess and repent of said sin. It begins with temptation, like a look. Hey, there's a naked girl on that roof. Then desire is woken up, or the enemy takes that temptation and offers something to draw you away. When that desire conceives, it gives birth to sin, as that sin grows, it brings forth death. And this is what we will see with David tonight. Remember, when we came to the end of chapter 10, we see David and his kingdom at the zenith, the absolute apex of its power, wealth, influence, and peace. David, by God's grace, had subdued all the nations. A number of the nations that he subdued, nations that were serving those nations, now were serving Israel. Wealth beyond measure from the spoil of, you know, conquering all those nations. And power because there was nobody around them who could stand up to David in, in his military. Whenever we think that A, we're okay, or B, that we can do it on our own, this becomes a great time of danger for us. So with that, we're going to um, dive in to chapter 11. And we're actually going to read most of the chapter off the top. And then we're going to go from there. So it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David rose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, I was going to say woof, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Uh, keep in mind that evening, um, because, you know, they didn't have air conditioning and whatnot, uh, springtime would be starting to get warm, and it was very common for people to stop working um, in the afternoon. So they would work early in the morning, and then they would work in the late afternoon, which is what they called evening. So this was really probably about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon by our reckoning. It wasn't at night. Uh, so David went or sent and inquired about the woman. Why? Why? That was dumb. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David said, oh, she's married? Well, let's leave her alone then. I'm going to go back to bed. That's not what verse 4 says. Verse 4 says, then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, I have sinned against the Lord. 
Nope. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to David, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was prospered. Now, I want you to picture a guy who is desperately trying to cover up his own sin. And because what I don't see is Uriah coming in and David sitting there on the throne going, Uriah, thank you for coming. You know, how is Joab? Is he, is he doing all right? You know, how are the troops? Is, is morale okay? I'm kind of thinking it was more, how's Joab? Well, Joab's doing fine. Okay, great. How's the troops? Well, he's fine. Well, what about, what about the war? Everything's good? Yeah, go home and have sex with your wife. Please. Okay, that's not what he said, but pretty close. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet, which basically means go home and have sex with your wife. Uh, so Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him, right? So I'm, I'm going to feed you. What a nice guy David is. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. And David said, Uriah, I got something I need to tell you. No, he didn't. David did say to Uriah, well, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. So every time Uriah's glass started to get a little empty, David ordered it to be refilled. Now when David... Oh, I already read that. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even drunk, Uriah has more integrity than David at this point. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. We know Joab is a scoundrel, but Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Uriah was a captain of, of thousands. You don't think Joab would have read that letter and gone, huh, I wonder what happened. But Joab's like, oh well. So it was while Joab besieged the city, verse 16, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there was valiant men. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him. And the messenger said to David, surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants and some of the king's servants died, or, or sorry, are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. What a jerk! Let's go down this road. So the, uh, the road to a person's downfall will often start when that person is not where they are supposed to be. It was the time of year when the kings went out to war. Joab was not the king of Israel. David should have gone out to war. Instead, he stayed behind. I have found 
that it's a lot harder to get into trouble if you don't go to the places that you are not supposed to be. Do you ever notice that? Am I the only one? Okay, everybody's head's moving. Right? It's, it's, it's just a lot harder. Right? If you have a problem with alcohol, why would you go hang out in a bar? If you have a problem with pornography, why would you peruse websites on the internet where that may be available? You know, and we can take pretty much any sin and figure out, well, if you don't put yourself in that situation, it's going to be a lot harder for you to do something stupid. So he goes out and he sees Bathsheba. Now we see the temptation and desire. There's part of me that thinks David knew she would be out on the roof bathing and she knew he would be out on his roof watching. I cannot prove this, but it's possible. Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. I know you were worried about that. A person we will see quite soon. But that makes Bathsheba Ahithophel's granddaughter. Now that's important because later when Absalom rebels against David, which we're going to see in just a few chapters, Ahithophel sides with Absalom. He sides against King David. I imagine at some point his granddaughter said, let me tell you what happened. Adultery. The desire conceived, and that gave birth to sin. The result of that sin is that Bathsheba was pregnant, and David needed a way out. David really didn't need a way out. He needed to confess. He needed to make it right. So we get to a cover-up. As the sin grew... David tried to cover up his sin by getting Uriah home and trying to get him drunk so he would sleep with his wife. However, as I mentioned earlier, Uriah was a man of integrity who would do no such thing. And as I mentioned also, Uriah was one of David's mighty men who was a captain in his military. So this is not some random guy. This is someone David knew. This is someone who had been loyal to David, including the years when David was running from Saul. This is someone who had fought for David, who had risked his life for David. Most likely, they were pretty close. So there's no such thing as a secret. God knows, and it will eventually be revealed. And so it becomes full grown. Now there's no way out of the sin but confession and repentance and David is hoping to avoid that. So here the full grown sin literally brings forth death. Physical death of an innocent man and spiritual death to David until he repents among other consequences that we will see in the next chapter. Notice, and, and this I think is the worst part, and I'm deadly serious. I know all of it's horrible. This I think is the worst part. He wrote essentially uh, an order of execution against Uriah. Then he handed it to Uriah, trusting in that man's integrity to not open it and give it to Joab. I don't know a part of this that's worse. 1 John 2, 15 and 17, or through 17, I should say, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. We see all three. The lust of the eyes. He went out on the roof and he saw her bathing and he wanted her. The lust of the flesh. He gave in 
to the lust of the eyes, brought her into his home, and had an adulterous affair. In the pride of life, he was desperate to not get caught, so he committed murder. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 13. 11 through 13. I keep missing the dash. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So all these things are written for us as an example. What we read here about David, God put in his word so that we would learn from it. The first lesson, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. David's kingdom was in a good spot. His throne firmly established. His enemies vanquished. He was wealthy. He was powerful. Nobody could touch him. He thought, well, I'm, I'm just, you know, the bee's knees, as it were. Which is such a dumb saying. <laughs> Do bees even have knees? Text your son, find out. Uh, <laughs> well, I guess he's our son. He's not just your son. Uh, but the bee's knees doesn't make any sense. But, but David thought he was literally untouchable. He thought he could do whatever he wanted. He didn't take heed lest he fall. He just thought he, he was going to stand. And I'll tell you what. I've met a few people in the world. Um, and I've had even Christians say something to the effect of, well, I could never do that. See, the issue is, I know that I could. I know I'm sinful. I know I can be tempted. I know that sometimes my brain doesn't work. And so, I never, okay, well, I'm not going to say never. I really try to not think I can't do something. Because the moment I think I am beyond a specific sin, well, that's the moment the devil's going to just start playing with it. And I'll probably find out that I couldn't stand. And then no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But the temptation will also make the way of uh, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, some people like to misinterpret this verse to say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not what this verse says. This verse says that whatever temptation you face, everybody else has faced some version of it as well. And God is the one who is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And the way he will do that is he will give you a way out. You still have to choose to take it. David walked out on that roof. And, and let's assume the absolute best about David and Bathsheba for a moment. That David didn't know she was going to be out there. And Bathsheba didn't know that he was going to be out there. He walked out on the roof and he saw her. All he had to do was go back inside. That's all he had to do. God gave him a second chance. Who's that? Oh, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. You know Uriah, your friend, who's out there risking his life for you while your lazy butt's taking naps in the afternoon? That Uriah? Second chance. Oh, married woman. Married to a friend of mine. Married to a loyal servant. Yeah, I ain't going to touch that. Nope. God gave him the way out. He didn't take it. God will always give us the way out. We don't have to sin. At times we will. At times we won't take the way out. 
And that's why I'm so grateful for grace and forgiveness. But God will give us the way out. On a complete side note and slight rabbit trail, in verse 21, uh, we do read about this instance uh, with Abimelech, the son of Jerushabeth, Jerubasheth, whatever, <laughs> who a woman, uh, she was actually, uh, it, says, it says that it cast him down from the wall so that he died in Thebes. And this was back in the time of Judges. It's chapter 6, verse 32, if you want to look it up. But the reason that that's interesting is because that means the book of Judges was written down and they could read it. That that was common knowledge at the time because Joab wasn't alive during the time of the book of Judges. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David, being the stand-up guy that he is, sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So yeah, isn't David a nice guy? Ah, oh, he takes this poor widow and makes her his wife. And to most, it would appear that he was willing to raise Uriah's son. The period of mourning at that time would have been somewhere between seven and 30 days. I'm kind of guessing that they went with the seven days because the sooner she came to his house, the sooner the pregnancy could be explained. Good job, David. What a nice guy, right? Taking this poor, pregnant widow whose husband just died into his home to take care of her and raise his faithful servant's son since he was dead. Nope. The thing that he had done displeased the Lord. One of the things that I really appreciate about... uh, the original languages of the Bible, and, you know, I, I don't really speak either, but I have really good tools that help me look them up and figure out what this stuff means, is that it is so much richer than we get in English. The thing displeased the Lord. Well, that sounds like the Lord wasn't really happy about it, right? That's not what the word means. The word in Hebrew is ra'ah. It's R-A apostrophe A. It's pronounced R-A-W-A-H, ra-ah. And it is a very strong word. First, it can mean to break something in pieces, i.e. it broke God's heart. It can mean to hurt, because we hurt God when we sin against him. It means good for nothing, as in David's actions were good for nothing. It means to spoil or ruin, which is exactly what David did to his kingdom, ultimately. And it means that the Lord sees this action as wicked. It doesn't just mean, yeah, God wasn't really happy about that. It means that God hurt over it, that it broke his heart. And why? Because he knew the consequences that would come from it. I do not ever want this word applied to my actions. I know there have been times when it has been. And for that I have repented. uh, Sometimes repeatedly. But I don't ever want to do that again. And I know I am not going to reach sinless perfection while I live in this body. Um, but oh, I just, I don't want to break God's heart. I just don't. Chapter 12, Numbers 32, 23 says this, and be sure your sin will find you out. So some time has gone by and you have to imagine David's thinking, I got away with it, right? The child has been born. So seven, eight months at least have gone by. No major consequences. No big problems. David's sitting there going, 
Well, I pulled one over on everybody, didn't I? Chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought or bought, sorry, and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. See, spoiling pets happened a long time before modern culture. All right, I know it's just a story, but I'm saying, I'm going I'm to use that as an excuse for what I do for my cat. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock, and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. He really should have read the rest of the chapter. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, quick question. If he's going to die, how is he going to restore fourfold? Just throwing that out there. Probably should have been the other order. He's going to restore fourfold, then he's going to die. So I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Nathan is sent to confront David. Now, David gets angry. He has a desire for justice. And I know this is true for me, as it is for most of us, that it's really easy for me to judge harshly when I see my sin in someone else. Anybody else? I do that. Because it looks really bad on them. Not so bad on me, but really bad on them. It's even easier when their sin is different from mine. However, we have no right to judge. Every sin is a violation of God's law, according to James 2.10. And while the bubble, the bubble, wow, why the Bible does say some sins are worse than others. First uh, John 5.15 and 16 makes a distinction between a sin that does not lead to death and a sin that does lead to death. In the end, all unrighteousness is still sin and all sin breaks the heart of God. I think this is something that, unfortunately, a lot of those in the realm or the world of Christianity have forgotten. You know, we could have, I'm going to bring up uh, an example, say, of, of a person who is just hates homosexuals. Just hates them because their sin is so awful. But they have no problem with, uh, you know, lying about their neighbor or gossiping in the church or whatever it might be. We do that, don't we? I don't want to do that. But I'm not going to lie and say the thought never crosses my mind. Because in the end, all sin is sin. In Matthew 18, 21 through 35, Jesus told us the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember, the, the first servant, he comes to his master, he owes him the equivalent of like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? A debt that he could never pay. And the master forgives him the entire debt. He goes out and he finds another guy who owes him a couple hundred bucks, grabs him by the throat, and when the guy asks for time, he says no, and he throws him in prison. And I've never understood debtor's prison. I brought this up a few weeks ago, I think. Debtor's prison really bothers me. If you get thrown in prison, how are you going to work to pay off your debt? Just saying. So the other servants see it. They tell the master. The master calls the guy back in. And he throws him in jail. Sells his wife and children. And Jesus equates that to our own lack of forgiveness. C.S. Lewis said, 
that we can forgive. Uh, what's the word that he used? We can forgive the worst in others because God has forgiven the worst in us. How do you argue with that? Verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Remember, at the end of chapter 10, he had peace from all of his enemies. Not anymore. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Duh. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The penalty for what David did, either of them, sleeping with a married woman, committing murder, the penalty under God's law was to be stoned to death for either. However, verse 14, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also who was born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed his house. You are the man. I have to give Nathan some credit here. Um, He was obeying the Lord to confront his king about his sin. He knew David. He knew David was a violent man. He knew David had a temper. When he obeyed the Lord and walked into that, it could have had a very different outcome. David had already committed murder to cover up this sin. He wasn't above it. What was going to stop him from killing Nathan? The only thing I can say is it would have been the Spirit of God. Because when Nathan confronts him, Instead of being angry, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Which I think is incredible. Especially that the Lord has also put away your sin and you shall not die. So this whole thing that God says to David through Nathan is simply this. I gave you everything. And if it wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Why did you do this? So now, David does display some humility. I have sinned before the Lord. And we've said it many times that David was a man after God's own heart. God said that about David. And it was not because David was perfect. It was because David returned to God every time he failed. We're going to fail, guys. But what do we do with it? You know, the, the, the difference between a... Well, no, I was going to say that wrong. Do you want to hear a dirty ho- joke? Horse fell in the mud. You want to hear a clean joke? Horse got a bath. Right? It's one thing to fall in the mud. It's another thing to roll around in it. It's a big difference. The consequences for David despising the command of the Lord. The sword shall never depart from your house. In other words, all the peace that he had won was now over. 
adversity from within your house. And we are going to see that in the next chapter when one of his sons rapes one of his daughters. And it's only a couple chapters up that we get into the stuff with Absalom. Yeah, it's in chapter 15. The child will die. We will see all of these come to pass as we continue through the Bible, and we will see most of them very soon. But the Lord has put away your sin. Really? 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We talked a couple weeks ago about... Uh, uh, the four men who lowered their friend down through the roof and, and Jesus looked at them and said, uh, your sins are forgiven you. And he proved that he had the authority to forgive sin by then healing the man of his uh, lameness. Because only God can do this. I mean, we're called to forgive one another, but only God can put away our sin. And the only way that God could put away our sin was to send Jesus to die on the cross, to take our place, to pay our penalty, and rise again. It's the only way. He then says, You have given the enemies of God an occasion to blaspheme. Not only is our sin against God and hurtful to him, and our sin is harmful to us, but it is a terrible witness. We are supposed to be salt and light in the world. And when we dwell in sin, our sin gives those who do not know God a reason to not come to know him. I want you to turn with me real quick to Psalm 51. No, no way. Psalm 51, and when you get there, I want you to notice the title. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone confronted me for adultery and murder, I've never done either, but... If somebody confronted me over adultery and murder, the first thought in my mind isn't, I think I'm going to write a song about this. <laughs> Just saying. Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before you. Against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. You will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. It's just incredible. Like I said, I don't think that would have been my first inkling. And maybe he wrote it later on, but whatever the case, it's incredible. Now, 
If you turn back real quick to Psalm 32, this is also believed to have been written surrounding this event. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, though my, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Remember when I said David died spiritually for a time? That's the description of it. Right? When, I, when I didn't confess my sin, my bones grew old. I groaned. Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality turned into a drought. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. Yeah, after Nathan confronted you. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And you can read the rest, but... What I want to say, and the reason we read those, is simply this. Uh, we're all going to make mistakes. It's just life. Um, I would prefer not to, but forgiveness is only as far away as confession. It's that simple. Forgiveness is only as far away as confession. So we get to the second half of verse 15, actually. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David, therefore, pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him. And he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. They actually thought he might try to kill himself. It's essentially what that means. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, dude, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall not, uh, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So David fasts for a week, doesn't bathe, doesn't eat lays prostrate on the ground uh, to the point that his servants, when the child finally died, thought that he was going to do something. And when he figures it out, he gets up, takes a bath, has dinner, and, and the servants are just confused by this. So they ask him. And first he says that he was appealing to God's grace, but now that he knows the child cannot come back, he says, but I will go to him. This shows David's confidence in the grace of God. In the grace of God concerning the child and the grace of God concerning himself. He knew that God had restored him to right relationship with himself. He knew that he was forgiven and he had confidence that when his life came to an end, he would go into the presence of the Lord. And he was also confident that the child was in the presence of the Lord. Now, why God did this, I do not know. You've heard me say many times that God will always do what is right, and he will always do what is just. 
And so in doing this, God took the correct action. And I know that's hard to think that a, a child dying is God taking the correct action. But he's God and we're not. Was it to spare the child the shame of David's sin throughout his life? I mean, this child would spend his entire life knowing what happened, how he got there. Was it simply a consequence for David's sin? Absolutely, but not as a consequence for the child because we know the child is okay. I think this is an excellent text to help us remember that God will not punish an innocent child for the sins of their parents or someone else. It doesn't mean that innocent children don't suffer at the poor decisions of other people. But God's not going to punish that child. I believe God brings each and every baby who dies. Whether that baby is killed by abortion or dies in some other means directly into his presence for eternity. This is one text that I think teaches us that very clearly. And I think we can make a case from several others as well. And that should give us hope. It really should. While the, gosh, what is it approaching, 80 million now? Babies that have been aborted in our country in the last 40 years or whatever it's been. It's just mind-boggling. Um, every one of them is wrapped up in the arms of Jesus. Every single one. I know it. Verse 24. Now, you've heard me say this on multiple occasions. The chapter breaks in our Bible are sometimes really bad. That's the end of chapter 12 in my mind. But oh no, they couldn't do that. So we got a few more verses. Then David confronted Bathsheba, or sorry, comforted, sorry, Bathsheba, his wife, and he went into her and lay with her, so she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So Solomon, a.k.a. Jedidiah, that name literally means beloved of the Lord, is born to David and Bathsheba, and this is what I would certainly call a Romans 8.28 moment. Right? And all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. How could God work something good out of this? David could not have committed a greater transgression than murder and adultery coupled with lies. But God works all things out and he can even use our sin and our foolishness to do so. Here we clearly see the grace of God. There's no way this should have happened. And Solomon became the greatest king Israel ever had. Verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem." So after using the people of Ammon to kill Uriah, Joab takes the royal city. But David comes out to do his official part as the king. Because if Joab had gone in and killed the king of the city, then they would have given David credit. So even though Joab's kind of a scoundrel, or not kind of, he calls David and he's like, hey, come in, finish the job so everyone will think it was you. That's exactly what he does. He makes all those people uh, who lived servants of Israel. Uh, the crown was, give or take, a talent of gold. Uh, huh? 90 pounds. 75 to 90. Pick one. 82 and a half pounds. 
That's a heavy. I don't. I couldn't wear a hat that weighed eighty pounds. Just me. So not only was it really heavy, I figured out what it would cost in today's money, and it's roughly a three million dollar crown. So David walked in, killed the king, and stole three million dollars. Well, actually, a lot more. Well, he didn't really steal it. He won it, I guess. But nevertheless, next week. Oh, one quick thing before we get to next week. Um, There are some who think verse 26 through 31 is actually kind of a travel back in time. That 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 actually took place uh, nearly after Uriah was killed while Bathsheba was pregnant and in David's house. So they think this took place before everything that happened with Nathan and and the child dying and so forth. Um, There's other parts of the Bible that are not quite in chronological order, so I don't really have a problem with it. Um, But at the same time, there's nothing in the text that would indicate that. So I'm not entirely sure. And considering they were conquering an entire country filled with wall cities, the idea that that took a while isn't really uh, that far-fetched. So next week, we will quickly see the consequences that the Lord spoke of concerning David's house begin to take place. Because sin always has its consequences. For the non-believer, the consequence is eternal judgment and separation from God. For believers, sin does not negate our salvation, because our salvation is by grace alone, based on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. However, our sin will still have consequences. And while God can use those consequences to bring about something good, the consequences of sin are never pleasant. So until next week, let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your great grace for each of us. I thank you, Lord, uh, that when I'm dumb like David and I do something stupid, that your forgiveness It's just one confession away. I thank you, Father, that we can come directly to you for that confession. I don't need another person or a saint or anybody else. I can come directly to your throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And I am extremely grateful for that. I pray, Father, that we would learn from the things we studied tonight, that you would give us just wisdom and understanding. And I pray that you would be with us for the rest of this week for the things we need to do and that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.